Always some wonderful sounds at that moment in the service. I love it. Well, good morning. This morning, uh, Pastor Keith is with the, uh, one of the Sovereign Grace Churches in Crestview, Florida. So that's where he's at right now, serving the church over there. Uh, but here today, we're going to be concluding our series from the Lord's Prayer. It's titled Fighting for Awareness, and it's about uh, how this prayer introduces us to some things that Jesus evidently wants us to be aware of on a regular basis. And, and I don't know about you, uh, but this series that he's had a burden for has just really been so helpful for me. Uh, he began by talking about how we have a limited awareness capacity. While we travel in a lot of information and ideas today, there's only so much that we can be aware of. And so I've tried to be more selective with what gets my attention. Uh, one of my New Year's resolutions was to only look at one screen at a time. Uh, you know, Rebecca and I enjoy every now and then watching a show on, on Netflix, but I found that what I would do is I'd pull out my iPad and I'd read on that and I'd browse social media and then and I have to ask, wait, what, what just happened there? Who is that person? Wait, who died? You know, it's just uh, not even following it. So, that, so now I figure if I'm going to waste time watching TV, I might as well enjoy it. Uh, but we interact with so much today. So much comes streaming into our lives and it affects us. It influences how we think about things, what kind of expectations we have for life, how we go about making decisions. And that's just something that we need to realize. In, in the information age, what we're aware of is significantly shaped by the surrounding culture. You know, as a youth pastor, I feel this. Sometimes it it seems like my voice is just a whisper in the midst of the noise. Uh, you know, I'm grateful for the influence the Lord allows me to have. And I hope you know we, we have a group of teenagers here in the church who are eager to grow. Uh, but the reality is their awareness capacity, like ours, is limited. And cultural ideas speak loudly into their lives. The surrounding world has always attempted to shape humanity into its mold and it's able to do that now in, in more ways than we even notice and it affects how we approach the subject of evil and suffering. Right, this is the, the third week we're going to look at that category of evil. Jesus teaches us to pray deliver us from evil. Right, here's a question for you. Where do you get your sense of right and wrong? of justice and injustice, of what's fair or unfair. Because you, you live in a secular culture that supplies definitions for these terms and, and then it, it trains you to expect reality to conform to your understanding. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Abolition of Man, he, he says that we, we used to try to discover reality and, and then conform ourselves to it by things like self-discipline and virtue, but now we just start with what we think we deserve and we, we try to make reality conform to our wishes. And, and notice what's been removed is going to God to discover how he actually is and the world that he's actually made. We, we think that we can analyze life without him. This is what Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, calls the anthropocentric or, or the man-centered turn. God is no longer the one who orders life, who gives us our sense of right and wrong. No, we can do that on our own. And so the, the secular age, it lives in what he describes as the imminent frame of reference, right? Imminent just meaning close at hand, the, the stuff that we're able to see and smell and touch and swipe on an iPhone. And so we have this functional view of reality that, that puts a ceiling at the limits of the natural world. And so all that really matters to us today is, is what you can find in a test tube or, or, or more likely what you can look up on Wikipedia, right? That's the relevant information that we think that we need to do life. Timothy Keller summarizes it like this. He says, it was often assumed that one was required to look outside of the self 
to nature and to God to learn the right way to live. Modern people, however, have a buffered self, a self that is bounded and self-contained. Because there is no transcendent supernatural order outside of me, it is I who determine what I am and who I will be. I don't need to look to anything outside of myself in order to know how to live. Today, the self is the master of the meaning of things for it. Indeed, we now stake our claim as legislators of meaning. And so we've become extremely confident in ourselves, in our abilities to understand and to judge things accurately. But what that means if, if something doesn't fit with my view of the way things should be, then rather than assume that maybe I'm the one who needs to be adjusted, I'll just dismiss it out of hand. And, and don't think that you're not affected by this. You and I swim in it every day. And that's why Jesus is very intentional about us being aware of the right things. But, but in this imminent frame, God is put under analysis. And one of the ways that this happens is through what's called the problem of evil. And it's this idea that since there, there's so much evil and suffering in the world, either God doesn't exist or at least he has a lot of explaining to do. Now, as, as we'll see, this isn't new by any means, but today it has YouTube. Uh, today there's a, there's a whole movement called the New Atheism uh, with uh, best-selling books and social media to back it up. And, and we've seen it affect people. We've seen people that we know and love leave Christianity behind because they got around arguments and ideas on the internet or they read a book that was handed to them by a coworker and they didn't know what to do with it. You have books being written like God's Problem by Bart Ehrman. Uh, Airman once identified as an evangelical Christian and he attended Moody Bible Institute, uh, but he eventually abandoned it all. And, and now he is, he's one of the most popular skeptics writing against Christianity today. And, and the subtitle of his book is How the Bible Fails to Answer Our Most Important Question, Why We Suffer. Now as you read the book, it becomes clear that it's not so much that the Bible fails to address this. In fact, he discusses a lot of the ways that the Bible seeks to address this. It's just that these reasons don't fit with his assumptions, so he rejects what he finds there. But, you know, we need to be ready for these kind of challenges. And as Pastor Keith said last week, we need to be ready before the day when our faith is tested. You know, he gave this illustration Water is going to run wherever it's deepest. And, and if you've been spending your time treading in the values and the distractions of this culture and you have no depth of engagement with what God's word has to say about this, then you will not be prepared for when it touches your life. Last week, he helped us grapple with the experience of suffering and evil, and this morning we're gonna interact with some of the intellectual objections that come up in this discussion and help us grow in our thinking and awareness on this topic. And we're gonna look at this from a few angles. Uh, so th this is not gonna be uh, a typical uh, Sunday morning sermon uh, from a passage of scripture. We're gonna do some interacting with a lot of ideas. Uh, there's a, a lot of content here, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to add to the suffering in the world uh, this morning, but uh, just bear with me. I, I want to I help us think through this, and so I just put everything in your notes so you'd have it as a resource to look at later. Uh, but I want us to do three things. First, to consider the problem of evil and, and see that despite its strong emotional appeal, it's ultimately unsuccessful philosophically. Second, to look at the atheist worldview or storyline and how it's unable to account for evil or for goodness for that matter. And third, to recognize the goodness of God in the Christian storyline. And, and we're not, trust me, we're not gonna resolve all the tension here. 
And here's just something that we need to realize. If we think that God must lay everything out to our satisfaction and, and to the sufficient detail that we would expect in order for us to trust him, then what we need is not more ideas. What we need is a new heart. And that's something only he can give us. Only he can help us to see. But hopefully uh, some perspective here will serve us. So first, the problem of evil. Evil must be taken seriously and it resists quick and easy answers. I was listening to a radio program last week and on it an atheist was recounting the tsunamis that took place in the Indian Ocean in 2004 and he just began to describe what this would have been like. You know, over 200,000 people were killed. Some were taken out to sea and drowned. Others were smashed up against buildings or pinned beneath cars. Some found that they were suddenly drowned in their homes. Closer to home for us is Hurricane Katrina, which took the lives of 2,000 residents in Louisiana and Mississippi. How can a good and loving God allow so much pain and suffering to exist in this world? How can you believe in God when there are floods and earthquakes, brain cancer and HIV, global terrorism and sex trafficking? If you look out on human experience and all of the natural and moral evils that confront us, shouldn't you conclude, the way that one writer has put it, that no eye is on the sparrow? You know, one of my favorite novelists is a man named Fyodor Dostoevsky, and, and he was just a master of the human condition in all of its complexities and, and brokenness. And in his book, The Brothers Karmazov, there's this section where one of the characters, Ivan Karmazov, is, is speaking with his brother, Alyosha, about why he doesn't believe in God. And he just begins to rail into him on this issue and he, he talks about the suffering of children. He says, people talk sometimes of bestial cruelty, but that's a great injustice and insult to the beasts. A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. I've collected a great, great deal about Russian children, Alyosha, and then he goes on to describe the suffering of this little girl that I, I won't read now, but he says later on, can you understand why a little creature who can't even understand what's done to her should beat her little aching heart with her tiny fist in the dark and the cold and weep her meek, unresentful tears to dear, kind God to protect her? Do you understand why this infamy must be and is permitted? Why the whole world of knowledge is not worth that child's prayer to dear, kind God. It's simply devastating. And I want us to feel the weight of this problem. But what possible answer do you give to Ivan? We'll come back to this at the end because the, the problem of evil, even though it's, it's deeply felt and it requires first our, our compassionate listening more than just cold analysis. At, at the end of the day, it, it needs an answer. And, and it's been formulated as an argument, an attempt to disprove that God exists. Right, right? how do you prove that God doesn't exist? Uh, well, it's said that you can prove that he doesn't exist if you can show that he is a logical impossibility. Right, it, it's relatively easy to prove that uh, square circles and married bachelors and tasteful mayonnaise uh, doesn't exist because they are logical impossibilities. And trust me on that one. Uh, and so the argument from evil, it's this idea that an all-powerful and all-knowing and good God is incoherent given the reality 
of evil in the world. It, it attempts to show that there is a logical incompatibility between the existence of God and the existence of evil. And the 18th century uh, David Hume, the skeptic David Hume stated it this way. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? All right, so the thought is that if God is good, then he'd want to prevent evil, and if he's omnipotent, then he'd be able to prevent evil, and yet evil exists. And so apparently God doesn't exist. Now, what's interesting is that even though, uh, you know, the college students in here, you guys are going to have to deal with this in, in courses and in intro to philosophy classes and all of that. It, what's interesting to note is that uh, professional philosophers of religion are pretty much unanimous in recognizing this as bankrupt with respect to the contention that evil is logically inconsistent with the existence of God, the atheist philosopher William Rowe writes, no one, I think, has succeeded in establishing such an extravagant claim. And the atheist Paul Draper says, I agree with most philosophers of religion that theists, those who believe in God, face no serious logical problem of evil. Right? Well, what happened here? Well, that's due mainly to the work of a Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga. And what Plantinga shows, he points out that there's actually no explicit contradiction between these two claims. One, God is omniscient, omnipotent, and good. And two, evil exists. Right? You can stare at those all day long, but, but they're not formally contradictory, even if people have this sense that they're held in tension. But we can also demonstrate that these concepts are not contradictory by adding an additional premise. Three, God has morally sufficient reasons for evil's present existence. And, and if that third premise is true, then all contradiction vanishes. You, you see the problem of evil, it's got this smuggled in assumption in it, this, this hidden assumption that God doesn't have any good reasons for allowing evil to, to exist. But, but you know, consider this, the, the way the argument is formed, we don't even have to know what that reason is, right? If it's even possible that God has a moral justification for evil in his plan, then the claim that the existence of God is incompatible with the existence of evil is without merit. So put another way, what the objector must prove is that it's not possible that God could have a morally sufficient reason for evil in order to demonstrate that God is a logical impossibility. Does that make sense? And that's why the vast majority of philosophers have have abandoned now the logical argument from evil and they've moved to something else called the evidential argument from evil. And, and that's basically this. The, the evidence of all the evil in the world makes God's existence improbable or unlikely. And, and it goes like this. You know, sure, God could have good reasons for some kinds of suffering, but when you just mount up all the senseless pain in the world, all the gratuitous evil, all the ways that people suffer in perplexing and tragic ways, it certainly seems that no eye is on the sparrow. But here's another hidden assumption. It's this. If I can't see any reasons that God might have, then he probably doesn't have any. But the problem with this, again, is, is how would someone be in a position to know that there is no morally good purpose for any particular instance of pain and suffering given our finitely limited understanding and perspective? Why assume that we'd be able to take two looks at an event and instantly recognize whether or not any good could come from it, right? This, this just betrays our self-confidence and our ability to analyze these things. But not every question is answered in the same way. And if I were to ask, 
Is there a rhinoceros in the room? (laughs) Uh, How you go about answering that question would be pretty obvious. You either see it or you don't. It would be pretty hard to miss. I'm sure it would be very noticeable in here. But if I were to ask, is there carbon monoxide in this room? That's something very different. Carbon monoxide, it's an invisible, odorless gas. It's not just a matter of going in there and checking out and discovering, is there a rhinoceros here, right? But if God exists and he is infinitely wise, why would we assume that understanding his ways would be as easy as looking for a rhinoceros? Why think that we have the capacity to answer whether or not he has good reasons for what confronts us in this world? In fact, we might agree along with Ivan, that we see no purpose in the suffering of a little girl. But because we cannot see it, can we conclude that it's impossible for God to see it? And so as as emotionally compelling as this problem is, when, when you look at the actual argument, the case simply hasn't been made. But here's something that we need to recognize. Every worldview, right, Every view of reality must account for evil and suffering. That's not unique to Christianity. We all live according to a storyline that makes sense, right? That causes life to be understandable. We, we ask questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? You're a character in some story. But the question is, whose story? Well, if you remove God from the picture, then you're placed in the storyline of naturalism. And this story has no chapter on creation. There's just the accidental unfolding of time and chance since the Big Bang. And, and there's no chapter on the fall. All right, there's just evolutionary development by natural selection. And there's no redemption. But then what are you left with when it comes to understanding good and evil? It's not enough to just throw shots at God and Christianity. You need to consider the alternative. Timothy Keller says, most people who see the problems that suffering poses to classical theistic belief move toward a more secular way of thinking. But we have seen that secularism is also a set of beliefs and it is probably the weakest of all worldviews at helping its adherents understand and endure the terror of life. You know, Pastor Keith uh, talked about how the secular outlook, it provides no explanation for why so much evil happens. You know, if people are basically good in their heart of hearts and if we've just been progressing as a society, Why was the 20th century the most murderous century in all of human history? Why were 200 million people the casualties of progress? You know, why is it, as as Ivan puts it, that, that a beast can never be so cruel as a man if at the end of the day we're just evolved animals? The storyline of naturalism doesn't supply an answer. But the problem for secularism, it's even worse because not only does it have no explanation for the presence of evil since it's abandoned a doctrine of the fall, but it doesn't even have a basis for calling anything evil. You see, to be morally outraged about evil and suffering assumes something. It assumes that certain things are wrong. But the reality is, on on atheism, nothing is really wrong. There are no objective moral values. And, And by objective, what we mean is true whether or not anyone believed in them. Even if everybody in the world thought that rape was okay, it would still be wrong. But in an atheistic world, what basis is there for universally binding laws about what's right or wrong? You know, it's interesting that the head of the the New Atheist Movement, Richard Dawkins, admits this. He, He says that our sense of morality is just a subjective disposition that's the result of random evolution. And in an interview with the radio host, Justin Briarly, he's asked, when you make a value judgment, in other words, when you say this isn't right or this shouldn't happen or or religion is evil for this. He says, 
don't you immediately step yourself outside of this evolutionary process and say the reason this is good is that's good? And Dawkins says, my value judgment itself could come from my evolutionary past. So therefore, it's just as random in, any sen- uh, in a sense as any product of evolution. Ultimately, your belief that rape is wrong is as arbitrary as the fact that we've evolved five fingers rather than six. Dawkins, you could say that, yeah. And so the atheist philosopher Michael Ruse describes morality as a collective illusion. He says whatever revulsion that we experience about things like human trafficking or the torturing of children, it's just an evolutionary adaptation like the gag reflex. Welcome to the storyline of naturalism. But the thing is, even if there were a right and wrong, there's no reason to believe that human beings are morally valuable that we can actually be the recipients of injustice. And and so even if we develop some sort of moral system like Sam Harris tries to do with this basic criteria that we should do things that promote human flourishing and and that prevent pain, uh, we can immediately ask why? Why is human flourishing a good thing? And why does it even matter in the end? We're just a doomed race in a dying universe anyway. You know, good old Bill Nye, the science guy, gives us a warm and fuzzy picture of our existence. He says, I'm insignificant. I'm just another speck of sand. And the earth really in the cosmic scheme of things is another speck. And the sun an unremarkable star. And the galaxy is a speck. I'm a speck on a speck orbiting a speck among other specks among still other specks in the middle of specklessness. I suck. Uh, Well, Bill Nye's self-esteem issues aside, it doesn't really make much sense to talk about the right or wrong way to treat a speck. In fact, on atheism, it doesn't really make any difference whether or not we ever existed. And, and it's interesting to watch 20th century existentialist culture was trying to grapple with this. And, and there was a, a play by Samuel Beckett titled Waiting for Godot. And it's not accidental that Godot begins with G-O-D. He's giving a vision of the world without God. But in it, these two men carry on this trivial conversation while they're waiting for a third man named Godot to arrive, who by the end of the play never comes. And he's saying that that's what life is like. We're just waiting for something to arrive that will never be here in the end. There's another play that he wrote, and uh, I don't know what the text for it was in the script, but basically uh, the curtains open, and they reveal a stage that's just littered with junk. And for 30 long seconds, the audience stares in silence at all of the junk and then the curtain closes. And you paid $35 to go see that. <laughs> right, but, but that's what he's saying. That, that's what life is if there's no God. It's just 30 seconds of nonsense, of, of junk. That's what it is, 30 seconds of nothing while spinning on a rock in a vast and immeasurable space, a tiny vapor of time among billions of years as the universe heads toward its destruction. And so to talk about right and wrong, justice and injustice, or even the supposed noble pursuit of truth at all costs, it's utterly meaningless in in such a view of the world. To seek the flourishing of humanity or or even to to save the, the planet from global warming, as one writer has put it, that's like trying to rearrange the 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 furniture on the deck of the Titanic right before it sinks. That's where we're all ending up in the end. And so on atheism, there are no objective moral values, and neither are there objective moral duties, things that you must do, that you're obligated to do, right? Even if there were a right and wrong, to whom would we be accountable? What duty would there be to follow what is good? You know, why not just be bad? 
And ironically, that's what Ivan tells his brother Alyosha in another part of the, of the novel. He says that if there's no God and no immortality, then all things are permitted. And so at the end of the day, that, that's all that he can say to the little girl. And atheistic ethicists agree. Richard Taylor says, the concept of moral obligation, that there are things that we need to do, that we ought to do, is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. So sure, there may be this social expectation to act morally, but there's also a social expectation not to wear socks with sandals. And some of you guys violate that all the time, right? Uh, being immoral becomes no more significant than being unfashionable. It might not give you far, get you far in life to live like a jerk, but if it benefits you and you can get away with it, why not? But of course, something inside of us screams that this isn't true, right? Some things really are wrong, objectively, and universally, racism is wrong. Child abuse is wrong. Sex trafficking is wrong. These things are evil. And, and we know in our hearts that objective moral laws do exist because we've been made in the image of God. And, and that's why even atheists can't help but make moral judgments about stuff. The, the suppressed beach ball of God's moral universe can't help but pop out of the water. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? Well, he was comparing it with the nature and character of God, which all people know because we are made in his image. And so the very moral uh, reasoning that's used to argue against God, we discover has actually been stolen from him. Atheism doesn't have the resources to put the label evil or wrong on anything, but, but it also doesn't have the ability to account for the good that we experience. You ever thought about this? Why is it that we even ask these questions? Why does humanity come up with something like the problem of evil? Why do we, why do we want to understand? You don't see too many penguins or tarantulas contemplating the meaning of life or the challenge of suffering. The anthropologist Lauren Isley described man as the cosmic orphan. He said he's, he's the only creature in the universe who asks the question, why? But might that be not because we are orphaned, but because there really is a father? Why do we do that? And you know, I'd argue it's because we're made in God's image. We are interpreters by design. And when I think of things like the, the, the late atheist writer Christopher Hitchens and, and his work and just uh, his intelligence and wit and, and humor, I, I think there's no way that that kind of forceful language is, is the result of just chemicals fizzing in a monkey's brain. Some of the, the, the best and most creative atheist writers, they're, they're actually a living argument for the existence of God. They display his handiwork even as they use his gifts to deny him. But this is just one instance of the way that God's common grace is broadcasted all throughout this world. And yet atheists have thrown away the basket for collecting these blessings. Augustine put it like this. He said, if there is a God... Why is there so much evil? But if there's no God, why is there so much good? Even in this fallen world, goodness breaks through every day. It's just an undeniable reality. We, we, we encounter beauty in this creation. We are met by love and generosity and joy. Life is hard, but, but it's not the life that Dawkins describes of blind and pitiless indifference. So what do you do with goodness? 
One of my favorite songwriters is named Andrew Peterson, and he, he has this song titled, Don't You Want to Thank Someone? And it's basically an apologetic for the existence of God from the experience of gratitude. He says, can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here, waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. But when you see the morning sun burning through a silver mist, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right and beauty abounds? Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls and the baby sighs and the rain comes down. And when you see that spring has come and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? G.K. Chesterton said that there's no worse moment for an atheist than when he has a profound sense of gratitude and realizes he has no one to thank. <laughs> no one experiences the blessings in this life and turns around and thanks Darwinian natural selection. But people often feel like they can't help but thank God. Right? Even obnoxious celebrities re receiving Oscars, right? It's what we're designed to do. We come face to face with his generosity every day. This is a world that has been marred by the fall. The curse has descended on every part of it, but the beauty and goodness of God's creation still burns through. David Wood gives the illustration uh, that nobody would look at the Venus de Milo, you know, that statue of the lady with the broken arms, uh, and, and nobody would look at that and say, you know, no intelligent artist would make a statue without arms. Nobody would be so incompetent to design this and therefore conclude that just wind and erosion made it. <laughs> right? No, no, you'd recognize the condition that it's in and, and that an artist made it, but that it's been damaged. Right? And, and that's the case for the world that we live in. All the suffering in it doesn't mean that it's a cosmic accident. It just means that it's been damaged. And that brings us finally to the Christian storyline. The problem of evil, it, it starts with an abstract God. It, it collects together a couple of facts about him, that he's all good and, and all powerful, but, but it removes them from the context of all that's true about God and his plan. And, and so it's just easy to conclude that God wouldn't have any good reasons for suffering, but, but that's cheating. <laughs> what you need to do is you need to step with both feet into the Christian view of reality and take a few moments to take a look around. You need to enter the storyline. And there we find that God is the author of life. He's the one writing the story. He's the maker. He holds the blueprints for life because he's the one who designed it. He knows, at the end of the day, he's the one who knows what we need and what will fulfill us. And, and he speaks this story into existence. Beneath all of reality are the storyteller's words. He, he makes the world out of nothing. He just says the word, and then he declares it to be good. In fact, he's the one who gives that word its meaning. God is the author of goodness. You ever thought about this? What do we mean when we say that God is good? You know, there's this classic problem in Western philosophy. It was called the Euthyphro Dilemma. It was named after a guy named Euthyphro in Plato's Dialogues. And I guess if you come up with wisecrack stuff like this, you might get a few things named after you too. Uh, but it's basically this. Is something good because God commands it? Or does God command it because it's good? 
All right, now, if you think that's the kind of question that's only asked by people who don't have any friends, uh, think about it, right? If something is good just because God commands it, well, then tomorrow could God just command anything? And that would become good? You know, would, would torturing people for fun be good if God happened to command it? On the other hand, if God commands something because it's already good, then it seems like there is some standard of goodness that's above God to which he must submit. Well, then where did that come from? And why don't we worship that instead of God, right? So you, you feel the problem there. And the answer to the dilemma is the one the Bible gives. God commands what is good because he is good. He is the standard of goodness. And what he commands, it's not arbitrary. It's always consistent with his own unchanging nature. Now, what that means is that when you and I talk about right and wrong, it's the nature of God that's the ultimate reference point for that. He's ordered the world and he's ordered our moral discourse after his own character. But what that means is that if you're going to stand on something to critique his actions and to call them into question, you look beneath your feet and you realize he's the one who built the platform to begin with. Right? That's the inherent problem with charging God with evil. You're just borrowing from his character when you make that moral judgment. But to say that God himself is goodness personalized, that helps us with what we mean when we talk about good coming from evil. And this is important, because here's a common mistake that Christians make. We read a verse like Romans 8, 28, that says that God is working all things together for good, and, and we don't allow the surrounding context to interpret, what, what does Paul mean there by good? And, and so the main things that we think of are, are good things, good events. And so the hope is that God is going to bring good events out of bad events. Like he's some master chess player ordering his moves on the board. Now that's partly true, but it's not the whole truth. What, what happens is that when when some tragedy occurs, we want to put up on the whiteboard, what's the exact formula, how God is going to work this for good, right? How is it going to play out? And then when we go to comfort one another, it rings hollow because we, we start to say things like, sure, you lost your arm in the car accident, but hey, maybe one of the doctors or the nurses are going to get saved through this. Or, yeah, your husband cheated on you, but think of all the people that you'll be able to minister to now. And you know what that person is thinking? I think I would have rather my husband not cheat on me than get to minister to a lot of people, right? It, it, there, there's something missing there. And, and I don't doubt that God is doing 10,000 things in any one circumstance, and I'm sure in his plan that's true. And we see some specific examples of that in Scripture. Things like uh, Joseph's life in Egypt. In fact, God had Caesar take a census of the entire Roman world in order to have this obscure carpenter from Nazareth and his wife go on to Bethlehem, right? He, we, we can never clue in to all that's doing and things that we look at that are taking place and we have no, re, no way to realize all that's going on there, right? He, he's doing some wonderful things. But in the Bible, the main good that we get from the suffering that we experience is God. God is the good that I need. He does what it takes in order to maximize my eternal happiness in him. Which means that to try to find some event here and now that will justify tragedy is short-sighted and will only leave me disappointed in the end. God is doing something so much bigger than that. And that's the point of Romans 8. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. 
And he says in, in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. God is expanding our capacity to experience his glory to our everlasting satisfaction. And on that day, we will say it was worth it. That is what he's preparing us for. And that helps us to frame what happens next in God's creation. As tension enters the story. In the book of Genesis, it introduces us to God's reality. And early on, it provides an explanation for the presence of evil in the world. It doesn't give us all the details, everything that would satisfy our curiosity, but it, it tells us why life feels the way it does and, and what went wrong. A dragon enters the scene. He offers an alternative explanation for reality, another storyline for us to locate ourselves in, and it's one in which God isn't good in which he doesn't have humanity's best interest in mind. And so tragedy enters the story of humanity. And this is the fall. It is ultimately the tragedy of dislodging the creator from his rightful place in the heart of man. And everything that is wrong in the world can be traced to this. As Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, mankind fell into a state of sin and misery. And listen, this is the kind of insight that only the Bible provides. Why does life feel the way it does? Why does depression exist? Why does disease steal life away from loved ones too early? Why do people get twisted up inside of their fears or caged in patterns of self-destructive behavior that they mysteriously return to again and again? And you just watch that happen. You just watch people wreck their lives over and over again and it doesn't make any sense. You try to find some math equation for this. You try to find some uh, clear scientific explanation for why you're doing that. It just doesn't fit all of the things, all of the mess that you and I encounter in this world. Why is there so much resistance and hostility? Why evil? Why? Because this is a fallen world. We have sinned and a curse has touched all of our existence. Now, of course, we naturally ask, why did God allow this to happen? And it would be tempting to, to try to rescue God from any responsibility here, to try to make this a turn of events that caught him by surprise, and, and he never would have imagined, but now that it's happened, he'll do his best job to mop up the mess. The, the Bible does not permit us to go there. He's sovereign. He's the one writing the story, and notice he doesn't begin by polling the characters on what they want to have included. Now, to say that God is the author does not mean that he is personally sinning or doing something wrong. You know, nobody thinks that Shakespeare is guilty of murder because Hamlet is killed. And, and, and when God arranges the death of Jesus, it is the sinful intentions of wicked men who do the deed. But, but ask yourself, right? Reality check here, what makes a good story? Is it when the characters never have to face danger? When nothing bad ever happens? Do y'all wanna sit down and watch a movie about a, a guy who wakes up and brushes his teeth and, and eats muffins and never faces any conflict? You know, I know we quote from the Lord of the Rings too often, but uh, there is a scene in the two towers where Samwise Gamgee is encouraging Frodo to, to press on when he's tempted to give up. And this is what he says, I love this quote. He says, I know it's all wrong. By rights we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. 
the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. Right? The, the, the stories that stick with you are the ones where the night is darkest just before the dawn. Now, unfortunately, th there are a lot of books and films that are being produced today in which the dawn never comes. What they do is they, they just glory in the evil, in, in gratuitous violence and sexuality. And I just find it ironic that our progressive secular culture that criticizes God because of the presence of evil in the world, it's the same culture that produces films with all this content and many of those uh, stories presenting these elements without any redemptive significance. You know, why is it that critics will praise a film like Deadpool uh, because of its nihilistic, crude content, but then turn around and blame God for the darker tones of his tale of redemption? It just, it just represents the hypocrisy of the age. Randy Alcorn writes, suppose you could remove from the story Lucifer's fall and Adam and Eve's sin. Take away Cain and Abel's conflict, the flood, Babel, and the battles of Joseph, Job, Moses, and David, and Elijah had with evil and suffering. Remove all the wars and heartbreaks and yearnings for something better. Take them all away and you would also take away Jesus who would not become one of us in order to reveal God's character and save us from our sins. And that's the amazing thing and, and where we see the, God, the goodness of God most clearly on display. The author enters the story. God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, because you and I live every day in this imminent frame of reference, we have no understanding of how drastic this is. We think we're pretty good and impressive. And so we've got no appreciation of the distance that God must come to us. Let me help us with this. I don't know about you, I've got no mercy for cockroaches. <laughs> oh my goodness. They, they carry pretty much every disease and parasite known to man. Their favorite place to eat is the sewer right before they crawl on your kitchen countertops. <laughs> they are basically the problem of evil right there. Now what if I came to you with the plight of the cockroaches and I had this proposal hey, why don't you become a cockroach and die for the little demons <laughs> at the hands of other cockroaches? Not in a million years. Listen, you and I are much closer to cockroaches than we are to God. And what is inside of our hearts is more disgusting than they are and this is what we need. Christianity has a solution to the problem of evil where it matters most, which is our personal evil. As Pastor Keith said, evil, is, it's not just something that exists out there. It doesn't just fill headlines. It fills the human heart. And in our most honest moment, when we stare into the mirror, we, we know it's true. We know there is something operating inside of us that is the same principle that produces all of the hatred, all of the violence, all of the things out there in this world that we rightly condemn, but in doing so, it turns around and points right back at us. 
Francis Schaeffer said, if all God needed to do is just collect together all of the, all of the judgments that people make inside of their head, all of the things that they think, oh, that's wrong, that person shouldn't, that, how, how could that person ever do that, and, and record all that, and play it on the day of judgment, and then just hold us to the standard of our own words, and replay our thoughts and our actions, that would be enough. That would be enough clarity for us to realize what's going on here. It's inside of us. We are the problem of evil, and the ultimate solution to the problem of evil inside of us is the gospel. In the person of Jesus, God has entered our world of suffering and he has taken our evil on himself. Jesus, the innocent one who did no wrong, received our wrong so that we could be forgiven. As R.C. Sproul put it, why do bad things happen to good people? That only happened once and he volunteered. It's true. And my wife had the privilege of meeting the Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. And in his book, Night, he has the gripping account of a time when the SS hanged a young boy while the rest of the camp had to watch. And he was hanged along with two other men who died quickly, but his throes lasted for half an hour. And, and there was a man standing next to Wiesel who said, where is God now? And he said, I heard a voice inside of me answer, where is he? He's right there. He's hanging on the gallows. And I think what he meant by that was that this senseless supper, suffering represented the death of God but he didn't realize how true his statement was. God was there, hanging on the gallows. In Christ, he has experienced every pain. And so the cross is an invitation not to have every question answered and every detail figured out, but to stare into the character of God, the one who bears our wounds. Sinclair Ferguson tells of the first man, the first physician to die of the AIDS virus in the UK and, and he was someone who had done missionary work. He was a believer. He'd done some work in Zimbabwe and, and toward the end he, he wasn't able to talk and so the way that he would communicate with his wife, he could just barely write one or two letters. And on his last day, he, he wrote the letter J. And she went through her mind, her mental dictionary, and thought of different words, and he was shaking his head, and then finally she said, Jesus? And he nodded, yes, Jesus. Jesus filled his thoughts. In that moment, that was all he needed to know. That was all that mattered. That was all that he needed to tell her. Eric, you can go ahead and come back up, man. We're in the middle of a story that hasn't concluded. But there is a resolution in the Christian storyline. And there are two sides to this. There's justice and mercy. And we're given the end ahead of time and we find that evil doesn't have the final word. Every injustice will be dealt with. Every wrong done in secret will be exposed. God will bring his fist to the jaw of evil on the last day. And so God's people hope in his justice. It's good news. We, we live in an age that celebrates tolerance, or at least what it thinks of as tolerance, but a worldview in which evil is never addressed is ultimately unlivable. It, it works as a bumper sticker. But it doesn't work when it comes to dealing with the deep wounds of life. The Croatian theologian Mirsav Volf, he, he notes that there really can be no true tolerance apart from a God who is one day gonna set things right. 
And in, in the early 90s, after the, the breakup of Yugoslavia, there, there was an outbreak of war of, uh, against the, the Croatians from Serbian aggressors. And, and Vol says that to people living in a war zone who have experienced their villages being plundered and burned and, and their fathers and brothers being murdered and their daughters and sisters being raped, it, it doesn't work to tell them that they shouldn't respond with, God, with violence because God doesn't respond with violence either. He says, soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And Paul says in, in, in Romans 12, beloved, Never avenge yourselves. Why? Because God doesn't either? No, but leave it to the wrath of God. He's gonna take care of it. That's what he's saying there. It's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, and so you and I don't have to. Uh, we, we live in a world where so much evil and injustice seems to pass by silently without an answer. That will not always be the case. God will repay. He will right every wrong. And this is a resolution where for God's people, every sad thing becomes untrue. He will wipe away every tear. He will make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Everything will be restored. Everything will be made right. And you and I, we are just moving forward toward that day. And all that seems out of sync of it, out of sync with it here and now, it's just about increasing your happiness for all eternity, where the goodness of God is clearly on display to the amazement and wonder and satisfaction of his people. And when we stand before him in glorified bodies that no longer experience sickness and death and with hearts that no longer resist his love, even if every mystery is not removed, the entire storyline will be clear and rejoiced in. Let's stand together. Andrew Peterson's song goes on to say, and when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent but to be broken then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent but it's waking up and I'm waking up because I can hear the voice of one. He's crying in the wilderness. Make ready for the kingdom come. Don't you want to thank someone for this? Hallelujah. Come back soon. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for how you are sensitive to our needs. Because you walked among us, you know our humanity through and through. You have suffered in every way that we will ever confront. Lord, thank you for this prayer. Lord, thank you for your desire to put us in contact with what you know we need to know. And not just know in the realm of ideas somewhere but to call it to mind to be aware to be aware of things like your goodness things that are so easy to forget things that so quickly get drowned out in the noise of the world that we live in Lord would your voice speak loudly to us today would there be something that resonates in our hearts for your goodness? Would there be faith 
Would there be trust? There may be some of us here for the first time we're just starting to get a glimpse of the picture of what this is all about. And maybe you are awakening them to faith. Lord, cause them to be responsive to you. Lord, cause them not to resist that voice. Lord, overcome the arguments. Overcome all that runs through the mind in this moment and all the ways that we, we want other information, other details, other answers uh, uh, to our questions, Lord, what would be most significant right now is Christ. He's the one we need. His forgiveness, His love, His resolution to all that we face. Would He be precious in our eyes for our joy? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys have a great week. Thank you. I'll keep this one. I'm the only one that plays on it, so.